Our friends from Healthy Bud just launched a new exciting product and our dog Zippo has been absolutely obsessed. Their mini training treats are packed with superfoods like lion's mane, reishi, and salmon oil to support brain health and with over 500 treats per bag and just one calorie per treat, you can rest assured that you're providing guilt-free taste and nutrition in every bite. To grab a bag yourself or a few, head over to us.healthybud.co and use our code FP20 to save 20% on your first order. We are beyond excited to announce our first digital dog training course on the subject of leash reactivity. We partnered with a fellow certified dog trainer, Aaron Gianella, in order to bring you the most comprehensive online course on the subject. Is your dog pulling on leash, lunging at the sight of other dogs or people, too overwhelmed or excited about triggers, or showing signs of stress? Or are they scared of other dogs, people, or sounds that they hear, and have trouble having a relaxed, stress-free walk as a result? And what about the human side of things? Are you struggling because it feels impossible to have a peaceful walk and outing? Are you embarrassed or frustrated by your dog when you're out with them? Are you actively avoiding activities in certain places and outings because you're worried about your dog and what they'll do? If you answered yes on any of these questions, we created this course specifically for you. For more information and to purchase this course, please check out our website at familypups.com backslash online dash courses. to the Family Pups Podcast. As you know, this is where we have conversations about the most commonly requested dog training and dog behavioral issues. So one thing that I really learned from our conversation with Brianne last week is that I think a lot of the times when you don't have any issues with your dog, you think other people don't have issues with their dog as well. But what she really mentioned that really stuck with me was that a lot of dogs that you see out there that are walking in the park and sitting nicely at the cafe, sometimes they could be such a small percentage of the actual dogs that exist out there. And maybe their dog parents are having issues in their home or in other places. And we just don't generally see them. And a lot of those issues generally don't really get seen or appreciated because let's say our dog is not going through those things. And one thing that I came to appreciate is that our dog Zippo, he rides in the car pretty well. We had to do very little to adjust him to the car, adjust him to riding in the car nicely. But for some dogs, that's an issue. Yeah, I think that that's been one part of Zippo that we've always appreciated, especially since the previous dog that we fostered, Buddy, he, the first time when we took him out in the mountains, he actually puked in the back seat of the car, which was not a pleasant surprise. 
And yes, I think that like just anxiety related to the car can just make the life of both the dog and the handler a lot more difficult and stressful because of that unpleasant experience inside the car. Yeah, I think it's very easy to look at other dogs who may have the skills that your dog doesn't have and either feel guilty or maybe feel a certain level of why can't my dog just be more like that uh, and feel bad as a result. But as we all know, everyone's going through their individual challenges, whether for themselves or for them and the life of their dog. Yeah, it's true. Everybody's different, just like dogs and people. We all just have their our own histories. So what is the, you know, we've been dancing around it. What is the issue we're going to be talking about today? Today, we'll be talking about car reactivity. Car reactivity. Obviously, we hear the word reactivity a lot. Uh, obviously, you released a digital course on leash reactivity. And so in your opinion, what is car reactivity and how is it different? Yeah, it's interesting because trainers seem to create the content that their audience seeks the most, right? Mm. So definitely for me and even for my course partner, Aaron, leash reactivity is a huge deal. And we're working with pretty big numbers of leash reactive dogs. Um, car reactivity, um, I look at it as the same thing. So the dog is having a reaction to some sort of a trigger that is passing by the car, is happening outside of the car. And then just as leash reactivity, the behaviors that we're seeing the dog express may be pretty similar too. So it may be vocalization, anything from whining to barking. It can be um, lunging towards the trigger um, and so on. So what I seem to be hearing is that, you know, you might be walking down the street with your dog on a leash and your dog is reacting to whatever triggers in the environment. And the only really big difference here is that your dog is just in a vehicle and is reacting to those things as the dog is inside the vehicle. Yes. So how, so how common is this issue for you? Do people come to you around reactivity of their dog in the car? Do some people have issues with getting their dog in the car, getting their dog to settle in the car, getting their dog comfortable in the car? What, what issues generally do your clients come to you with in regards to their dog in a car? Sure. I can't say that car reactivity is a big part of the requests that I receive from people. It could be related to leash reactivity, meaning that that dog is reactive on a leash and they're also reactive in the car. Typically, that is pretty small percentage of clients that I work with. Something that is more common is just general anxiety when it comes to being in the car so that can be either young puppies who are just starting to learn to ride in the car or older dogs who have anxiety related to being in the car mm -hmm. yeah i think we take the experience of 
being in the car a little for granted, right? Um, it's something that we're kind of used to. I'm sure you went through it when you got your driver's license a couple of years ago, how awkward it could be to obviously get in and out or even just maneuver within the car and within the world with the car. And largely it's become normal for us, but for a dog, I'm sure, you know, sometimes I think I'm like, man, like they must think this is like some spacecraft just like going to and fro on this earth so quickly. Uh, I could understand how it could be disoriented and potentially confusing. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I was, I, when I first started driving alone in the car, I would be so tense that <laughs> after the first couple of days, then my muscles would be sore from tensing so much. And yes, over time, I just relaxed more and more as I got to practice more. And sometimes that can happen with, um, whether it's a younger dog, like a puppy or an older dog, it can happen with them too. When they're first starting to experience the car, they may be experiencing some motion sickness or just um, sudden stops. Whatever it is, they can have a, a bodily response to the stress or to the experience of being in the car. And then over time, if we're able to present it for the dog in digestible and easy chunks that are not overly scary, the dog can start to get more used to it. And when it comes to diving deeper into the subject, we can do so with our guests. Great. So let's uh, do kind of a thought exercise. Obviously, you are a pro at leash reactivity. So let's just assume that you're dealing with a reactive dog and the environment is just in the car. And so if you want to kind of transfer over some of the either management strategies or training strategies that you might use for leash reactivity, what might be certain things that at least in the first couple days you might be like all right let's let's try this and see how that kind of works yeah i mean the first thing that i'm going to consider is everybody's safety so what does the dog's reactivity inside the car look like is it just when you park the car and then someone goes by or is it while you're driving too because Obviously, it's easier to work with the dog when the car is parked and you can play games where you create positive associations with triggers and you teach the dog alternative behaviors. But if the reactivity happens while you're driving, then we need to heavily consider management as a first step. So in order to keep everybody safe, how are we either um, preventing the dog from seeing the triggers that will cause them reactivity or how are we housing the dog so that they're unable to see the triggers and also if they do happen to see something they can't just like be jumping all over the car while you're driving totally so it could be um a type of a film that we can put on the windows in order to 
prevent the dog's view um, outside or it can be um, a crate or a carrier that we have placed um, in the car. It can be a type of a car seat just to make sure that the dog is stationary, um, just looking at the specific situation and determining the best strategy. And then it will be, yeah, figuring out how can I create training setups that will resemble real life training, but in a way that the dog can perceive those triggers and not be overly emotional while they learn that they predict good things and equal eye contact and equal um, any other behavior. It could be like a downstay relaxation or it can be paired also with some sort of an activity. So yeah, a chew or something else that the dog can be doing that is taking their attention away from the outside environment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and here's my last question before we introduce our guest. Uh, I'm going to be asking our guest this question as well. But, um, you know, for some people, when they're learning to train their dog, learning to manage the environment based on your, your teachings and feedback, you know, some might be pretty simple. Hey, I want you for a few minutes to train your dog to do this, to do that. And I would imagine people who bought a training package from you, that would be pretty easy for them to do. So, okay, I'll have to carve out some time and I'll do it when I, when I have some time, right? Whereas some, like in this car reactivity, you might have to buy a, uh, a restraint, a, a crate, put a, a film over the, the windows, they might have to drive at different times, drive a different route. I can imagine some people, even though they want to achieve this better situation with their dog, you're just like, oh, I don't got time for that. Oh, that's like way too much stuff. That's way more. Can, can I, is there an easier way? And for you, I'm sure you're like, well, there's only two ways. You either do nothing. Or you do all these things in order to get to your goal. And so when some people kind of have that pushback of like, because they're under the fantasy that there's a third way when there actually isn't, how do you respond to them to get buy-in from them? Because as I mentioned, the changes in their lifestyle are going to be significant on an ongoing basis. Do you have that pushback and how do you deal with that? Sure. I, I think that management can be one of those aspects of life that may need us to adjust and change some things that we may have been accustomed to mm -hmm. and even like. How I would go about it is seeing if we can break the picture down to small steps for the human too. So what could be the easiest possible version like can you can you give it like 10 minutes or five minutes to where you just going to do this one thing and that will be the only time when you have the dog in the car and then on week two can we just add an extra step to that that can make it seem more effortless and easy to start to incorporate this type of training in a way that can fit this person's 
lifestyle and also their needs mm -hmm. and their concerns as well. Yeah, I basically asked you how do you do behavior change in humans, and your answer is remarkably similar to how you would do behavior change in dogs, which is breaking it down step by step, and let's take it from there, right? Because yep. as, uh, as we've said a million times, uh, dog training is not only about training the dog, it's probably more about training the humans. Yes, and to that point, we can start to add some reinforcement history to where the person's like, hey, I did this small little chunk and I'm actually getting some good results. So the person can start to be positively reinforced yeah. based on their efforts and the work that they're doing. And that can get us more buy-in on their end too. Yeah, maybe you should have like $5 Target gift cards and you're just like, yes, and you just hand it to them. And, <laughs> and then they're like, yeah. and then they're... Yeah. tail wag and stuff yeah my clients sometimes notice if i mark them they're like ah oh, this yes was for me this time <laughs> yes <laughs> well great so let me introduce our guest today we're very excited to have vanessa charbonneau she is a registered veterinary technologist and multi-certified dog trainer who specializes in working with dogs with fear reactivity and aggression she works tirelessly to educate dog owners on the power of positive reinforcement training while using humane science-based training methods. She is one of the first trainers in Northern British Columbia to become accredited by the BC SPCA's Animal Kind program with her business, Sit Pretty Behavior and Training. Vanessa lives in Prince George, British Columbia with her husband, two daughters, and cattle dog mix. So without further ado... Introducing Vanessa Charbonneau to the podcast. So, hi, Vanessa. Welcome to the Family Pups Podcast. Hello. Hello, hello. Uh, so, to start, could you describe the journey that led you to develop your car reactivity webinar called Chaos in the Car? Was there a catalyzing event or series of events that led you to feeling like you had to spread the word about the specific behavioral issue? Yeah, so I found I was frequently getting asked about what to do with dogs who are reactive inside of vehicles. Um, a lot of my content is geared towards dog reactivity, whether that's on walks or in the house. Um, but my clients were really wondering, you know, what happens when we're in the car and my dog is reacting? How do I deal with that? And it became really obvious to me that this is a problem that a lot of people were dealing with. And I wanted to create a quick um easily accessible and concise resource for these people to help them better understand what is going on with car reactivity, how to manage it and how to start addressing it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And is, is reactivity something that you work on pretty often just in general? And this is just one kind of aspect of that for you? Yeah, so I've recently specialized in reactivity um, in the past couple of years because it is one of my favorite things to work on. Um, I have a reactive dog myself, and I find that reactivity is a very, very common concern um, for dog guardians and one that really can um, affect their quality of life and their dog's quality of life. So I specialize in reactivity, fear, and aggression now, um, so it makes up the majority of my days, and that makes me very happy. <laughs> I was going to say likewise too it's just yeah reactivity for some reason has been just so commonly requested that yes we have no choice but to embrace it and yep the bonus is that it can actually be really fun to, to it is change as well even absolutely though it's also stressful uh sometimes but yes <laughs> yeah absolutely and, and do you find you know we've talked to other dog trainers as well do you find that 
you know, reactivity cases has gone up, you know, due to the pandemic as well. Are you seeing those trends as well? Yeah, uh, yeah, I would say so for sure. Um, it's it's very rare that I talk to somebody who doesn't have some sort of reactivity concerns, um, whether or not that's because that's what I specialize in. So they're coming to me for that. But I do think that reactivity has increased in general, um, could be because of the pandemic could just be because this world that we live in is sure. so overwhelming at the best of times. Totally. And our dogs are just struggling to keep up with that. But it's it's a very, very common, mm. common problem. Yeah, and also because reactivity can encompass such a wide range of emotions, right? You can have yep. just like excitement and frustration and then fear and anxiety. So it's quite a huge field of emotions that can cause reactive behaviors. And maybe that's why we have so yep. much of it too. Yeah, absolutely. It is a complex behavior issue to deal with for sure. Mm -hmm. So I had a question about just identifying the feelings, as you mentioned, or the emotions that the dog is experiencing. You know, we were going through the webinar and you were outlining, it could be any number of emotions that is resulting in this reactive behavior. And so do you find that clients are easily able to identify what those emotions are and be like, hey, I know my dog well, and you just tell them, hey, just observe. And then they usually come to that general realization themselves, or do they have a general hard time identifying what that base emotion is? I think that most people have a difficult time deciphering what is the cause of their dog's reactivity. Reactivity can look so similar and be caused by so many different reasons, um, and, and but look the exact same. And I think that when we talk about reactive dogs, there's sort of a, a general understanding of that term as aggressive. Mm. This dog is aggressive. And so we see a dog behaving that way, and we automatically, our mind goes to this dog is angry, and this dog is aggressive. And it makes it really easy for us to overlook some of the more subtle body language or more... Um, you know, body language that we have to think about a little bit more that is telling us that, wow, this dog is actually struggling and is worried about what's going on and they're behaving in this way um, to try and make things go away. Mm -hmm. So I often find that um, clients misunderstand their dog's behavior. They don't, they don't know why it's happening or they've, they've, decided it's happening for a different reason. And when we really dissect that behavior out and analyze it and figure out what the, the function of that behavior is, um, the clients are often surprised to realize, you know, gee, my dog's actually frustrated or my dog is anxious or fearful or whatever is going on. Um, so very, very um, often it is not aggression that is causing this reactive behavior. But I think we get really excited when we see teeth and we hear barking and growling and our brain just automatically goes in that direction. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my experience has been that people whose dogs do well off leash, for example, so they can go to the dog park or they go to daycare, like to them, it's, easier to understand that my dog is frustrated and mm -hmm. wants to greet that dog and that's why i'm seeing those behaviors i find mm -hmm. that the people whose dogs are fearful and reacting out of fear tend to struggle a little bit more with kind of uh marrying the two concepts together because if you're fearful why are you acting aggressive right and yep. those, i find that those people can just when they're going through their own journey of just kind of coming to terms on how to help the dog may need to do a little more work for themselves so that they can team up with their dogs and help them out.
I totally agree. Yep. I definitely find that fear, I fear is a harder emotion for us to uh, understand. Um, maybe we can appreciate what the dog is fearful of. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, that's how the dog feels. And we do have to respect that. And we do have to work, work with that. Um, and that can definitely take us, take us more time to, mm -hmm. to accept and to come to terms with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Human example, I always use to kind of help me understand how you could look aggressive while feeling fearful is, you know, let's say we're in junior high school and you're getting picked on or whatever, and you kind of stand your ground and you try to huff and puff and, and shout mm -hmm. or scream or try to do whatever you can. The last thing you want is the actual fight, but you're sick of this and you want it to stop. And your hope is that they're just going to back away because you look so ferocious in fear of that you might do something. But you're just hoping that nothing actually ha happens to you. Absolutely. And then we learn how effective that behavior is, you know, growling, barking, lunging, how effective it is at getting distance. And we go, you know, wow, that was, that got me what I wanted awfully quick. I'm going to do that again. And then we get these dogs who start to get pretty good at reacting mm -hmm. um, to get things to move away from them. Um, and they can look a little bit more confident in that reaction. But, you know, when we peel back all those layers, it's still stemming from a place of uncertainty or worry. Yeah. Um, and, and it can be really really difficult to decipher that for sure. Totally, totally. And we'll be back right after this break. Are you looking for exceptional veterinary care for your cat or dog? Good Heart Animal Health Center is here for all your pet's needs. Their happy, helpful team provides full service care for all stages of your pet's life. They have separate areas for dogs and cats, helping to create low stress checkups for pets and their people. Every new client receives a free pet name tag and bottle of wine as a thank you for giving them a try. Goodhart has two locations in Denver at Broadway and Alameda and now open in Cherry Creek. For more information, visit goodhart.vet. Now back to the episode. Before we dive into what car reactivity is, let's talk about what it isn't. So in your webinar, Kiosk in the Car, you make it a point very early on to mention that car reactivity specifically refers to dogs reacting to things outside of the car. But what about dogs that exhibit anxious stress or fear-based behavior that stem from the car experience itself, such as the space of the car, the movement or speed of the car, the view of the environment from the car, etc. Do you work on these types of cases as well with your clients? And if so, how different or similar are these types of cases in terms of how you would diagnose or work on the behavioral issue themselves? Yeah, so car anxiety or fear of the car are both behavior problems that I do work with, um, in addition to car reactivity or reactivity while in the car. Um, whenever we're looking at a dog's behavior, it's so important to determine why that behavior is happening or what the function of that behavior is. So what is my dog trying to accomplish when they do X, Y, or Z? And that would apply to reactivity when you're in the car or fear of being in the car. Um, in some cases, our dogs might react towards stimuli outside of the car because they are anxious or fearful or upset, whether it's because of that stimulus on its own or because they're concerned about being in the vehicle. Mm -hmm. With 
Dogs who are fearful of being in the car itself, for whatever reason, I find that these dogs are a little bit less explosive than our dogs who are reactive to external triggers. So we might see more signs of avoidance. Um, Their guardians might have trouble getting them into the vehicle. So the dog is balking or Mm. hesitating because, oh, no, I don't want to go in there. I don't want to do that. Um, And once inside the vehicle, they might express their anxiety by panting, whining, pacing, Or sometimes the opposite, where they really withdraw into themselves and they might freeze or shut down. Mm. And that can be a really, really difficult uh, body language to analyze because to the, you know, the untrained eye, that looks like a dog who's fine. Um, So oftentimes my clients will say, well, he really hates getting in the car, but once he's in there, he's fine. Um, And I always ask them, you know, what does fine look like? Um, What does that look like to you? And when we start to analyze that a little bit more, tease out what's going on, we realize that the dog is really just trying to cope the best that they can. Mm. Um, Dogs who are showing behaviors like this, so the avoidance or the hesitancy to get in the vehicle or panting or drooling, especially in the vehicle, I really like to tease out whether or not there's a motion sickness component going on here, um, causing or adding to the dog's fear or worry of the vehicle experience. Um, It's really unfair for us to point fingers at a dog's behavior when there's a health or unwellness component contributing to it. So I really like to make sure that's not a problem before we start to say, okay, now let's deal with the behaviors here and this, this general fear of the vehicle. Mm -hmm. Um, With car reactivity or reactivity to those triggers outside of the car, that worry or fear is often because of the trigger itself, not because of the vehicle, but but because of whatever else is going on outside of it. So we really need to focus on helping the dog feel differently or better about those specific triggers before we kind of add them back into the car environment or context. Um, Oftentimes dogs who are reactive when inside the car are also reactive to some extent to those same triggers outside of the car. So we're going to see that a bit more general in those dogs. And so are a lot of these uh, those two cases that I mentioned, whether it's fear of it being inside the car and reactive outside of the car, a lot of those cases are probably distinct and separate, right? You're not having a dog that is fearful inside of the car as well as reacting to things outside. Do you, do you see those types of cases as well or are they separate? They're usually separate. Um, I There definitely can be overlap. Um, I think that, you know, if we're upset about things going on outside of the car, we can start to create associations. You know, I'm now I'm inside the car. Yeah. I can't get away from all these scary things outside. So now I'm upset about the car. So I definitely think we can start to generalize mm-hmm. that a little bit. But in, in my experience, they're usually one versus yeah. the other. So I'm either afraid of the car or I'm worried about what's going on outside. Um, there's always exceptions yeah. to those cases though. Yeah. And it's, it, it's interesting that they make such associations because if we were just dropped on a, on an alien planet too, and we couldn't understand mm-hmm. the language that was being spoken to us too, we're going to try to make as many associations as we could to kind of make Absolutely. the place feel safe for us too. As well. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it's it's you got to survive. And if you don't know if it's if it's safe, then deem it dangerous until you figure out otherwise. Yeah. Um, and our dogs are very good at making associations and very good at generalizing when we really don't want them to, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so they can they can come to their own conclusions pretty quickly. Yeah. yeah. So great. So one of your greatest skills is your ability to break down dog training terminology into simple, relatable 
and easy to understand terms. Sometimes, you know, it could be just very esoteric to a lot of people, right? So could you describe in your own words what reactivity is and also why you think it's a misnomer? Yeah, I really don't like the label reactive dog, um, but I find that most dog guardians can understand or relate to it. So for simplicity's sake, I will continue to use it. Um, when I'm talking about a reactive dog, I'm really talking about a dog who is behaving in a way that is over the top given the current situation. So these dogs are actually better labeled as overreactive towards certain stimuli or certain triggers. Um, every li living thing on this planet has to be reactive in order to stay safe and survive. So to call a dog reactive is really, you know, of course it is. Of mm -hmm. course they're reactive. You know, if we're not reactive, we may not step off to the side when a car passes us on the sure. road, keeping us safe, or we don't withdraw our hand when something is hot or uncomfortable underneath it. So reactivity to the environment around you is really important. Um, but with our reactive dogs, quote unquote, these dogs are taking things further than that. So they're reacting in a way that is bigger than necessary or putting more energy into that reaction than might be deemed appropriate in that, in that scenario. We were really impressed by your ability to compare doctoring terminology and create good analogies with, with human situations. Did you find yourself do, able to do that naturally and that would just, just came out of you or did you have to kind of do that to get your clients to kind of buy in better? Like, what was that process like for you? Yeah, it's definitely something that I've managed to learn and finesse as I continue on as my in my career as a dog trainer, I find that analogies can really help people understand what's going on or maybe relate to the dog in a different way, you know, you know, putting yourself in the dog's shoes. Um, whereas if I try and get super nerdy and explain things in behavior terms and talk about associations and generalizations and conditioning, then the people, their eyes kind of glass over and I've lost them. Mm -hmm. But if I put it into an analogy that we can relate to, it helps us better appreciate what the dog is going through, mm -hmm. maybe better understand their emotions. And then it also makes it easier for us to empathize with the dog and then a, a look at that situation differently. Differently. Yeah. Instead of the dog is giving me a hard time, the dog is doing X, Y, Z, the dog is being so bad, we can flip that around and go, gosh, my dog is really struggling right now. He's feeling this, this or this, and which is causing him to behave this way. And he's really, really needs my assistance. So it makes it easier for us to appreciate what's going on and to look at things in sort of a fresher perspective, which makes it easier for us to get on board with the training plans and the management and everything that goes into that. Love it. Love it. So as you know, you know, as we, we talked about a whole bunch of different ways a dog can be reactive, whether that's in the car, while on leash, even through a window, you know, towards mm -hmm. house guests due to a knock on the door. We've all seen that, right? So what are some of the unique challenges that dealing or living with the dog's car reactivity poses for a dog parent that might be different from other types of reactivity that you work with? 
Yeah, I think one of the biggest challenges of having a dog who is reactive inside the vehicle is management for that dog. Um, when we talk about management, I'm always talking about the reduction of, of the rehearsal of those unwanted behaviors. So how do we stop these problem behaviors from occurring? Um, limiting situations where our dog might feel inclined to behave that way or inclined to react so that they're not experiencing that stress or finessing that particular suite of behaviors. Um, oftentimes, dogs who are reactive in the car, like we said, or reactive outside of it as well. And part of their guardian's management plan is taking their dog somewhere safe to walk them. So if you have a dog who also has leash reactivity, and that can get really muddy when we also have a dog who's reacting in the car, um, because now we have to decide, is it more important for me to walk somewhere quiet and risk the car ride? Or is it more important to prevent my dog from reacting in the car and risk the walk in a busier area? Yeah. Um, there's also the safety factor in the car. Um, so when we're driving a vehicle, we can't be actively interrupting or redirecting our dog. We can't be actively training. We can't be doing all of those things and do them safely. So we're really, and we're really kind of in it in that moment. Um, and we also can't avoid those triggers. So when we're out on a walk, we can turn around, we can cross the street, we can do things to get space yeah. from triggers. But when we're in the car, we're in the car and the triggers are there and they're often very unpredictable and we don't know when they're coming and we don't know how long they're staying for. Um, and, and we're really trapped in that moment. So I think that the management piece of car reactivity is really the most difficult um, to figure out and to, to get in place for most people. Mm. Yeah. So let's talk about management. Uh, obviously, there seems to be so many more things that people need to implement and change their lifestyle to manage car reactivity specifically, right? And I'm sure you're going to outline some of those things. But before we go into the specific things that you recommend, how do you get buy-in from some people that are living really busy lives and they barely get a minute to themselves and you're telling me that I have to get this and that and attach this and, and move mm -hmm. this and all that. And for some, maybe they might not be aware of like, this is the only way to get yourself to the goal that you say you want to, but they might be dragging their feet a little bit. They might be like, I, I don't have any time for that. And you might mm -hmm. be left there being like, well, <laughs> that's, there's no other way through. Yeah. So how do you encourage? How do you, how do you nudge in a, in a loving and understanding way of, of, of their lives too? Um, without feeling like you're just kind of making something a little harder on an already hard life. Yeah, I mean, management is always daunting, whether it's in the car or other areas of your life. Um, we don't really want to change our lives to accommodate the dog. Um, I know I felt a lot of resistance when my dog started to develop some reactive behaviors. You know, I didn't want to do the management, but I always explain to my clients that management is so important. So equally, if not more important than our actual training plan. Um, and then I like to start small. So I lay out my management plan here in my ideal world is all of the things that you might do. Let's start with one piece of that, one small adjustment to our routines, to our lifestyles. Let's try that for a week, mm. two weeks, whatever it might be. And let's see how that feels. Let's see what happens with that. And then as we see, okay, yeah, we made that one adjustment that worked okay. You know, the world did not stop spinning. Then we might <laughs> add in another piece. Um, and we, and I think that as clients see 
the results of the management. So their dog's not getting triggered as often. Therefore, their dog is not as stressed. We're not seeing as much of that trigger stacking. So the dog who's just chronically stressed and chronically ready to, to explode at any moment, that they start to appreciate that, gee, this really is doing a whole heck of a lot for my dog. Um, management sometimes when it comes to car reactivity can really quote unquote solve our problem. Mm. So if we prevent the exposure to those triggers and we prevent our dog from reacting, oftentimes my clients go, well, that's all I want. I just want to be able to drive somewhere without my dog throwing himself against the window. Um, And we don't have to do anything more than that. So, you know, some of these management changes might seem really big and really inconvenient initially, but they can also do a whole heck of a lot to address the situation we're in and get us some resolution. when I talk about trigger stacking, I always throw that word around and realize that not everybody knows what it means. Yeah. Um, but a trigger is anything that our dog is reacts to or is stressed out by or, or is, you know, is eliciting emotions. And if we're constantly being triggered, so we're being triggered multiple times a day or multiple times in every car ride, those triggers start to stack on top of each other. And then we have a dog who's climbing higher and higher and higher towards their threshold and getting more and more and more stressed. And if we're getting triggered every day or multiple times yeah. a day, our dogs never have a chance to regulate those stress hormones and come back down to normal. And this results in a dog who's kind of wound wound tight all of the time yeah. and very trigger sensitive. So we're seeing more reactions more easily um, with dogs who are constantly being exposed mm. to them. I think it's funny how aligned we are with things because I started writing <laughs> yeah. here, management can solve the whole problem. That yes, right. The next point <laughs> that you went uh, talking about, yeah, to talk about and yeah, to us, um, when we were working on creating our reactive dog course, we I don't know if we, I don't think we came up with this term, but we like to think about it as reactivity loop, right? So you just constantly mm, have yes. a trigger stacking situation or the dog has developed the expectation that sooner or later they're going to encounter a trigger and going to have a reaction. Yeah, those can be really tough to work with, especially yeah. when you have busy environments such as larger uh, apartment buildings or downtown areas where inevitably you can't escape everything and you can constantly be in a reactive loop and now if you add a trigger stack on top of not being able to drive places right that makes things a lot more difficult yeah But we can still break things down to smaller bits and just kind of conquer one little piece at a time. That's right. Progress is progress, no matter how small it is. And I always tell my clients, we just got to start somewhere. We just got to start and it, we're going to, we will break the cycle, but you got to trust me a little bit because initially it seems like, you know, we're not going anywhere. What are we doing yeah. here? What do you mean? Um, we're just avoiding the problem, which is another common <laughs> thing I am told a lot. Yeah. Um, I, but I, I really think once the client, you know, when the client buys into that and they're like, all right, we'll do it your way. They really do realize that, yeah, this is, this is absolutely beneficial and this really is making a difference for everybody i mean this is something that i realize when just talking to dog trainers in general i i just love talking to dog trainers because sometimes i just throw it out i'm like how are you going to accomplish this and every dog trainer is just like well break it down into small bits 
and then right. and, and then do that, <laughs> and then and then see climb the staircase, and then see yep. if you uh, accomplish that, and then build confidence, that's and then right. more small steps. I'm like, <laughs> that that's is right. so inspirational. Like some people right? they just look I at know. the enormity of the problem and just like. Oh, that that's can't be right. Done. That can't be done. Uh, let's. Uh, Abs- you know. Exactly. Yeah. We have to. I always tell my clients one day at a time. Don't look at three months from now. Don't look at all, you know, all of the steps. Like, just, just focus on one piece, yeah. one attainable step today. Yeah. And then we will build from there. Yeah. Um, and we sometimes just have to get the ball rolling. Yeah. 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 And that can be the beauty sometimes of actually investing in working with a trainer because we can indeed really see the picture in much smaller steps mm-hmm. than what people think is a small step yeah. or sometimes yeah. they may be skipping a step for example the, the the most common one that i hear is that they let the dog look at the trigger and then they wait for the dog to look back at them to reward right the dog. yes but what if the dog never yeah. thinks to look back at you once they that's see right the trigger and a lot of people are just stuck on this one small yeah piece where yep. they really it's want, not working yeah they yep. really want to reward the dog for the good thing but i can't seem to get past that one item yeah mm. yeah dog trainers are important <laughs> dog trainers are important you guys are doing good <laughs> yes, things in are. the world <laughs> property you all <laughs> all right so let's talk management so as you know when a dog is reactive in the car anything that will prevent them from practicing those behaviors is crucial to help them deal with the root cause of the issue as such, what are the management tools or practices that you find yourself recommending most to clients that are dealing with car reactivity? Yeah, one of my favorite management setups in the vehicle is a crate. And I get a lot of resistance from this one. Um, but I just find that this is one of the simplest solutions to the problem because we're not only are we adding safety in, so now we don't have a dog who is able to interfere with the owner's driving, um, but we can also cover that crate and prevent that visual stimulation, which is oftentimes one of the biggest triggers for these dogs is the sight of those um the whatever stimuli is outside of the vehicle. Um, I get a lot of resistance. You know, I drive a very small car. I can't put a crate in there. Um, but the soft-sided collapsible crates um, actually can do us a lot of favors and can fit into some pretty small vehicles um, because we can sneak them in there and then set them up. Mm-hmm. Now, they're not doing a whole heck of a lot in the form of protection in the event of a motor vehicle accident, um, but they can really be a great solution for this car reactivity. So my go-to is always, can we create the dog? Is there room for a crate? Is the dog comfortable with a crate? Can we create train? Um, because that alone can make a huge difference um, in management for sure. And quick question, how do we secure the crate in the back seat? Uh, what do you mean? Do we like put a belt over the crate just to make sure like if we stop suddenly the crate doesn't move forward? Yeah, definitely don't want it sliding around because then that's just a projectile. So lots of people will use the safety. I don't know if they're called safety straps. This is such a husband question Um, (laughs) to like secure the crate. Um, I know that the soft sided ones sometimes have little tabs that you can attach them to. Oftentimes, if I'm recommending soft sided crates, it's to people in very, very small vehicles. Mm -hmm. And that crate ain't moving anyways, because there's really no way for it to move. Mm -hmm. But those bigger um, vehicles, where you do have more space to manipulate a crate, we definitely want it to be anchored somehow so it's not slipping and sliding and causing causing issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Got it. And you have to be a bit creative with that for yep. sure. Yep. 
And so what are some of these lifestyle changes that, as we just talked about earlier, that you kind of, you recommend to, um, you know, avoid some of these triggers that might not be stuff that they might purchase? Um, yeah, so fast, oftentimes I find that dogs who are reactive to, let's say vehicles from inside the vehicle. So traffic around them, um, let's stick to the side roads. Let's stay off of those freeways, um, stay away from where the truck routes are going because those are going to be noisier, um, vehicles that can be more upsetting. If we have a dog who's reactive to people, let's not drive downtown. Let's, you know, being really mindful of where you're going and what triggers might be present. Um, is, is a really great way to try and reduce their um, exposure to triggers from in, inside the car. Um, you know, what time of day are we driving? Do we have to be driving with the dog? That's another question. You know, is it critical that the dog is driving places or can we avoid car rides for a little bit while we get some management in place or start some training? Um, all of those things I always tell my clients it's short-term pain, long-term gain. So it's not necessarily you can never take the dog on the freeway ever again, but let's stop right now while we get a handle on this and, br and break that reactivity loop, like you mentioned, um, so that we can start fresh with our new plan in place. So I had a question about, you know, I think we've all been in the situation probably when, since we were children where we're going through some parking lot or some area with cars on the street and there's a dog that just kind of loses it at the sight of us mm. and they're inside. Maybe the window's cracked and they're, they're safe, but, uh, and you know, I've had some memories where I would just get really startled because a dog just losing it in front of me. Are those dogs kind of also reactive when the dog's moving? Are there some dogs that are just kind of reacting when it's parked? Uh, I just had a general question about that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I some of my car reactive dogs are only reactive when they're parked, actually. Mm. So stoplights are a really big trigger for them. Um, oh, interesting. Versus if they're, yeah, so if, if they're going, the trigger, maybe because the duration of the trigger is shorter. Mm. So it's there, then it's gone because yeah. we've driven past it. But when we're stopped, then we have people, you know, loitering across the crosswalks and there's increased duration time of that exposure. Um, so it can go either way. Some dogs will do, are just reactive in general. Mm. doesn't matter what's going on. I see a person and I'm upset about it. And some dogs can be very context specific um, about when they're upset about mm. things. Um, I think it really depends on the dog and it really depends on you know the function behind that yeah. that reactivity as well yeah so cool so let's say management has gone well you've reduced as much as you can to get them to practice that behavior so let's talk training so let's say mm -hmm. your dog loses it in the car and as you point out whining growling barking lunging and biting at stimuli uh at the sight of mm -hmm. any people nearby let's say due to fear let's say that is their trigger right taking into account yep. they've done everything they can to manage the situation as we just talked about and make the lifestyle yep. changes necessary could you take us through what your recommended training protocol would look like for a dog like this from let's say the first few sessions to you know graduation yeah, if if I've got a dog who's fearful of strangers, I'm I'm really focused on that emotion, that fear. So in order for us to change this dog's behavior, we really need to address that fear, the underlying emotion, um, and we need to help them feel better. So not afraid of that person. So that is my ultimate goal of those training plans is to help the dog be more confident and comfortable around those triggers. Oftentimes, I will start these training plans nowhere near a vehicle. So not in the vehicle, not even beside the vehicle. And we just 
single out those those that trigger of the person and we start at a distance where that dog is comfortable and confident and I always tell my clients the dog needs to be comfortable and confident and relaxed every step of the way or we are doing something wrong yeah so we're not throwing the dog in a situation where he goes oh my gosh there's a person what do I do what do I do we're putting him in a situation where he goes "Mm, that might be a person way over there but I'm not really worried about it and we're starting there Once I've got some foundation work with people in general, so people, I'm starting to feel better about them. People are predicting really good outcomes for me. I have a different skill set that's going on here. Then I might start to bring the problem context, the vehicle back into the situation. And I might start to do that training in a parked vehicle. So the person is still way, 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 way far away. Usually I've recruited a helper for this so that I can control what they're doing. So it's not people moving about willy nilly. I can tell them when to move. I can tell them how to move, how fast. And I start in a parked vehicle. And once we're getting comfortable there, then we're going to shift our way back to the problem context to the actual driving of the vehicle. Now, when we're doing training in a vehicle that is not parked, we definitely need to be recruiting somebody to assist us mm-hmm. with that. So we need somebody to be, to be driving and somebody to be training because we cannot sacrifice our safety to accomplish this. Sure. Um, but once we've got some of that foundation work, so our dog's feeling better about the strangers, our dog's feeling comfortable watching strangers from a parked vehicle, it really starts to snowball in a good way forward where the dog starts to generalize, okay, people show up, I actually know what to do now I feel pretty good about that and I'm no longer feeling compelled to to scare them away because I don't really care Mm. that they're here anymore Mm. um so I really peel it back to that base the fear of the strangers before I build it back up to that problem context Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I I so want to highlight two points of of what you were saying just to make sure that they really stick out because oftentimes we can have almost like these two clashing ideas because the what the person is saying is I don't care about anything else I just need the barking Mm -hmm. and lunging and all these behaviors to stop where the mindset change and shift here is that we need to look at where those behaviors are coming from and all we need to care Mm -hmm. about is addressing this feeling Mm. this underlying emotion because once we do so all these other things are just naturally going to dissipate as well exactly (laughs) yep um and the other we have to address the emotion to address the behavior first and i always tell my clients we, we you know if we don't get rid of the fear the dog is going to continue doing what it's doing because it's doing it for a reason. Mm-hmm. And if that reason is no longer present, the dog doesn't need to, to react anymore. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then the other idea of the training setups, and I've, I think it's just, I feel like it's something that I just talk about all day, every day, because mm-hmm. it does seem a little bit more of a foreign concept to actually like create that situation yes. where you actually have someone come help you out and you figure it out distances, yep. you figure it out ways to create these scenarios. And this is where you start instead of thinking about, Uh, well, let me just head out and I'm gonna, you know, Mm -hmm. try to work with the dog where we already may be a little more stressed, a little more reactive. We may not have paid attention to something or have no control over how the situation is actually developing. So really highlighting that idea of training setups and all the difference that it can make to a case um, is important. 
Mm-hmm, very. Yep. Um, and so when you are training with your clients, are are there situations where like maybe you're driving the car and your client is in the back seat with the dog? How, mm-hmm. How's that work? Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, yeah, I mean, I've done, I, we've done it all. Um, we've, if we don't have a helper, I'm the helper. Um, if we don't have a stranger, I'm the stranger. If we don't have a trainer, I'm the trainer. Like I've, I've played all of the roles and it really depends on what that client needs, what they feel comfortable with. So, you know, sometimes a client really wants me to get things started for them and they want to observe for a bit before they feel comfortable holding the reins and that's totally fine. Um, but I, I've, done it all um i've paced so many parking lots and sidewalks it's not even funny i'm sure people i'm sure people think there's something wrong with me um but we need we need to have control over that environment to help set our dogs up for success and that is that is my job as the trainer is to ensure that that dog is set up for success that dog is under a threshold and is comfortable and if we have dogs who are losing their marbles in a training session that is on me because it is up to me to prevent that from happening and we are not accomplishing anything by throwing a dog in the deep end and asking them to figure out how to swim Mm. so um yeah any any position i need to be in is is what we do during those sessions yeah Mm -hmm. well and that can be such a differentiating point when it comes to us showcasing our work as dog trainers even when it comes to social media, because different camps of training always make a point to show dogs mm-hmm. who are losing it. Where for us, yeah. it's like this, this is the hardest thing to look at <laughs> and we can't be just yes. recording. We, we need to jump into training. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, it's just interesting how those differ and, then at the same time, how much people just love that idea of before and after. Yes. Oh, we yes. love it. We love it. Yeah, it's we do. Yeah. I think we just feel like our dog is the maybe the only dog who behaves that way. And you have to see what's going on in order to help me. Yeah. And I always tell my clients, like, I didn't go through all of the schooling I went to um, so that I had to see your dog in action. Like you just got, I, I don't need to see him. Yeah. I don't need to, I've seen him. I've seen a dog lose it in the car before. I've, I will see one again. I don't need to see it. <laughs> We can get a plan in place without that. And I don't want to put the, let the dog rehearse that behavior any yeah, more than absolutely totally. necessary. So um, we don't get the fancy before and afters. That is a sacrifice I am 100% willing to take. <laughs> Me too. Um, no, I, I totally understand about, you know, I played the stranger many times. And there have been instances where yeah. I'm like knocking at the door because the dog is reactive to That's the right. door knock. And I'm looking That's around. Right. I'm like, do people think I'm trying to like rob this place? That's like, right. What? I know. Mm-hmm. Whenever I bring my decoy dog out, I get an awful lot of stares. And people uh, actually have had people compliment me on my dog's wonderful stay. Yeah. Uh, and I'm like, well, oh, no, he's actually not. He's not real. He's a stuffed dog. <laughs> um, but we get lots of looks, lots of I looks. Bet, um, people always have questions. <laughs> it's like the local crazy lady coming out right now. That's right. <laughs> With her fake yeah. dog, yeah, yeah, that's all right. Whatever it takes. That's that's exactly it. Yep. Um, well, I have a, I guess, semi-interesting question for the group. Um, has your insight into reactivity, into behavior, has that spilled over into your own life, into things that you might be reactive about, and have you used some of those techniques on yourself? 
take me through some of that if 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 that's relevant. I think for me, the more I've learned about reactive dogs, I really think that what's hit home for me is trigger stacking or that reactivity loop. Um, and being able to identify when I'm one myself am in that reactivity loop and having strategies to pull myself out mm. of it. So we always talk about with our reactive dogs decompression, you know, my dog had a bad day, how do I help him come back down from that and get back to baseline. And I think that is something that I've managed to pull from my training side of myself and bring it into my own life is addressing trigger stacking, recognizing trigger stacking, and being able to pull myself mm. out of that, that loop. Um, uh, it's same with my kids too. I've got two kids and identifying them when they're starting to get trigger stacked um, and realizing that, you know, that outburst of behavior that's coming as a result of that trigger stacking is not my child being defiant or malicious sure. or whatever label you want to throw on them. That's my kids saying, I cannot handle any more. Mm. Um, and then that allows me to approach that in an entirely different way than I would if I labeled my kid as stubborn in that moment. So, so that to me has been a game changer for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, well, my thing is that sometimes when I get, let's say triggered in, in some way and I, I'm feeling in a certain way, but maybe I'm not very aware of what exactly am I feeling. My mm-hmm. mo- most recent exercises were, okay, I'm just a little off, like what's going on. And then I would just like sit down and write out like my thoughts, uh, what the situation is. And just once I start writing down, it really helps me pinpoint uh, a certain mm-hmm. trigger or a certain feeling and a certain narrative that comes as a result of those experiences. And then it that helps me then um, recognize whether that's the reality or mm. just something I've made up in my mind or yes. or if it's a narrative that actually serves me and my well-being or if it's just like the mean girl speaking in my head and whether right. I want to listen yes. to her or not. Yeah. And that has just helped me bring some awareness to where my emotions and reactions are coming from. Mm. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, and if I could relate too, uh, I mean, I do a lot of hot yoga. I've also recently done an ice bath, and I realized that my mind might be telling me, hey, it's too hot. Let's get the hell out of here. Or it's too cold. Mm -hmm. Let's get out of here. But then I realized I'm not, that voice is not me, that there's something above that voice that could choose to accept what that voice is telling me. Or I could just be like, thanks for your input, but I'm in charge here and I'm going to do what I think is best for the group and, and make yep. that decision. But I think for a long time, I'm like, if I'm feeling this, it, it, needs, to be, it needs to be said, it needs to be told, right. it needs to be experienced because that's who I am. But noticing that distance was a big um, revelation for me. Yeah, very, very cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, that's what we do with, training reactive dogs too because they have been so conditioned to see that trigger and have that instant emotional response 
when mm-hmm. we're doing our counter conditioning exercises and teaching them alternative behaviors, we want to create this space between the when they see the trigger and the reaction that they're actually having to a uh, uh, space to let's let's check in, let's breathe, yep. let's sniff something, let's do something yep. else and just start to help them cope better in those same situations right. with some other tools mm-hmm. that now we've added to their toolbox. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of that knee-jerk reaction, let's stop and think Mm -hmm. just for you know even a split second let's think and I I really liked when uh my reactive dogs start to check in with their owners is like to have a conversation so let's let's communicate about what's up there first before we just blindly react to it and I think that that's one of the coolest moments in the reactive dog journey is when the dog sees something that it previously would have exploded at and it stops and it checks in with the owner to go what are we going to do and I think that's one of the coolest moments for those guardians too is to go wow we are we're actually we're on board we are in this together we can we're communicating and now I can tell my dog okay we're going to turn around or we're going to go do a sniff or we're going to we're actually okay we're going to pass or whatever it might be but to have your dog look back to you for support and know that you're there watching their back is I I mean it's priceless huge yeah um so cool so let me talk about a challenge that we that we face when we're trying to educate people about our doggy doula service is the proliferation of funny videos starring dogs and babies mm. and toddlers that clearly shows to a trained eye or even a barely trained eye, a dog in distress, resulting in many yes. people believing that these types of interactions are safe and thus requires mm-hmm. little to no preparation, management or training. So similarly, similarly, when you see videos of dogs poking their head out the window as they try to bite cars of, of oncoming traffic individually, like they're literally trying mm-hmm. to bite it, do you see a dog in distress or having a hard time while many of us, us included, unknowingly find these videos funny or hilarious? Mm-hmm. It's interesting, actually. My my kids have just discovered America's Funniest Home Videos, um, and they love America's Funniest Home Videos, and they love when the animal section comes on, and I physically cannot watch America's Funniest oh. Home Videos anymore for the exact same reason, because oftentimes it is a dog who is upset, who is t- trying to tell you to stop, please go away, don't do that, and we're putting, you know, we're laughing, and we're putting it on TV, and it's hilarious, um, and I, and I, it's so hard, and I think once you know dog body language, and you know what you're seeing, and you know what is actually going on, you cannot unsee it, and I think that's one of the biggest problems with those videos is that people don't realize what is going on in those in those videos or they or we've downplayed it or we've you know put a spin on it so we've just we've just discredited the dog's emotions and the dog's emotional welfare in that video um so body language is something that every client I work with has talked to about I have a couple of my favorite resources that I recommend to everybody Um, one of them is the book Doggy Language by Lily Chin Uh, I really love that book for families because it's all illustrations and I find that kids can really get into that and kids are much better at reading body language than most adults Um, and then there's also a really cool body language course that Bravo Dog Training has put out that's very affordable Um, and I recommend almost every single 
single client I see to go watch that because I do not think we can learn enough about dog body language, um, myself included. I am always learning. Um, and once we know what the dog is saying with those subtle signs and shifts and lip flicks and all of those things, it can really change how we perceive those moments in those videos. And we go, gee, that's actually really not okay. Um, and the internet is full of those videos <laughs> and it's just it's exhausting yeah. yeah and i guess an add-on will be to when we're let's say doing a training session or when we're wanting to just keep an eye on how our dogs are doing with some of the more subtle body signals mm -hmm. we may need to actually record ourselves with the dog and then go back yep. to look at it later because even mm -hmm. the other day I was doing this presentation on dog body language and, you know, people expressed that the lip licking was something that was unusual for them to hear as a sign of stress. And then yep. I was um, showcasing how to pet the dog later on with a couple of dogs that were there. And I didn't see that at the time, but when I looked back at the video and I started petting gently the one dog, it, I saw a few lip licks, which I couldn't see from that point of view. And I was right. like, oh my gosh, this dog. Oh, wow, yeah. And, I pet her. <laughs> and she did the lip licking, yep. but nobody could see at that time. So sometimes there is a lot of subtlety. So unless someone else is helping us Very. watch or we are recording, we may not yep. even be able to detect those. Yeah. Yep. Video playback is so beneficial. I mean, not even just for body language, but evaluating our training, our, our timing, uh, our mechanics. Um, as I, you know, all of my certifications I've achieved, all of my training was recorded. I have, I, you know, hours and hours and hours of video and watching it back I still to this day is very beneficial um, to review, you know, gee, I missed that moment or I was a little bit sloppy there. Or, I didn't realize my hand was doing that or very interesting that my dog's tail lifts ever so slightly before he lunges. Mm -hmm. um, I am constantly narrating body language to my clients so that they start to pick up on it. Um, and it's really cool to see as we progress through our training packages together, my client goes, well, I noticed that his left ear stands erect just prior to this happening and they're picking up on all of those subtle signs that they thought weren't happening before that are giving them a lot of valuable information so yeah video review is amazing um the more dogs we can observe um i've sat at the dog park before and just watched dogs to get an opportunity to observe body language um it's it's so valuable and i'm constantly learning um more and more about it yeah, this just makes me think about human body language, right? Because we've had such yeah. a, so many hours upon hours to study other people's right. little movements to indicate this or that emotion, um, you know, and there's even some mental ailments where they're incapable of reading certain body language, right? Um, yep. And it just reminds me that, you know, in this increasingly digital world where we're interacting without seeing people. Um, you know, we're missing a lot of the information. Like a good example might be if you see someone kind of scratching their neck, it's easy to be like, oh, he's itchy behind the neck. But we've seen enough video yeah. or we've seen enough live interaction where, oh, that guy is nervous, you know, but it's like, right, right. Or the, the hair. Yeah. But yeah. to, <laughs> but to someone that let's say an alien came down to earth, they might be like, they're obviously sure. just itchy behind their neck. It's like, well, it's way more yeah. than that. But 
we had yeah. we had to learn all of that over so many years. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and, and we don't have as many hours, as much opportunity, or as much time observing dogs and dogs body language is so complex yeah. and can be so minute sometimes yeah. that um, it, it really can be difficult to interpret and really easy to miss sometimes. So the more we, the more we learn, the, the bigger picture we're going to have of what the dog is actually telling us. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, amazing. It looks like we're coming up on time, Vanessa. Um, we really enjoyed this chat with you, but I just really want to open up the floor to you. How can people connect with you? Yeah. So the easiest way to find me is on Instagram. Um, my handle is sitpretty.training. Um, you can also check out my website. All my webinars are on there. Um, the website is www.sit-pretty.ca. And you can message me from my website or from Instagram. Um, I'm always happy to have to connect with people on either platform, answer questions, just introduce yourself. Sometimes it's just nice to say, hey, I'm a reactive dog owner too, and I can relate to you um, because I think it's really important that we have a support system. Um, and I think that my Instagram is has become a really cool support system for lots of reactive dog people. So I'm always happy to connect with um, other dog guardians and just chat or, or answer questions. So yeah. Wonderful. Well, that's how we found you and we've been loving your Definitely. content. So yeah. we're glad we got to talk thank to you, you as well. And yeah, thank you for your time. It was such a vibe just talking to you. I feel like we were just having a regular conversation that just happened to be recorded. So yeah, we enjoyed this very much. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for inviting me on. So we'll follow up with you soon. But until then, have an amazing rest of your week. Awesome. Thanks, you too. Thanks. Bye. Bye, guys. Just listen to the Family Pups podcast with your hosts, Tanya and Charles Lim. Subscribe to our podcast to catch our latest episodes. If you like the show, please make sure to share and review us on your favorite podcast app. And for links to anything we mentioned in the episode, check out our show notes. And don't forget to visit familypups.com slash podcast to listen to past episodes of the Family Pups podcast, including episodes on separation anxiety with Melania Demartini-Price, Unpredictable Aggression with Michael Shikashio, Fearful Dogs with Debbie Jacobs, Puppy Socialization with Marge Rogers and Eileen Anderson, and many, many more. <laughs>